welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. Welcome, everybody, to Fantasy Baseball today, Wednesday, April 22nd. I was going to start the show off by saying back-to-back days. We have everybody here on the podcast, but what do you know? The NFL draft is this week, so Adam Azer is leaving his good old Fantasy Baseball today friends behind. But I still do have Chris and Scott here with me. Chris, how's it going, man? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm working on some NFL draft content. You know, I am the the senior editor for CBS Fantasy, so that includes football. So, uh, unlike Adam, though, you know, I, I can do both. So, I'll be writing a, a quarterback prospects piece and making an appearance on the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast because that's just the kind of dedication that I have to uh, the craft. Look at the dedication from Chris Towers. Scott is here as well. Scott, no NFL content for you. But yeah, Scott's not, not as dedicated. Yeah, well, Scott's dedicated just, you know, to baseball, which is what we respect here on the show. Scott, how's it going? Good, good. It, it wasn't too long ago I was writing about football, too. But I think, I think the baseball audience demands more from me. So this is a very good thing that I'm here full time for them. It's not a good thing, Scott. It's a great thing that you are here for the people. Fantasy Baseball today. On today's show, we're going to deep dive Nick Senzel. Um, Interesting player just because looking at doesn't really have a uh, everyday role in the lineup as of now, unless, of course, we do have these universal DHs. That's something that can help Senzel. And this is one of those uh, players that we we were requested via Apple Podcast Review to deep dive. So we'll do that. And we'll also do another one of these general strategy discussions, which I really enjoyed our conversation on trading last week. Today, we're going to really dive into auctions. I want to hear as much about how you guys attack auctions as possible from the preparation to, you know, once you're in an auction, uh, you know, how do you set up your auction values? Uh, These are all things that we've gotten questions about uh, and things that I'm just in general uh, excited to hear about. We will answer your questions no matter what. When we get to the 50-minute mark, I'm going to play Stone Cold's theme song, and that means everyone stop talking, and we're getting to emails, fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. But let's start off with that deep dive from uh, Nick Senzel. Averaged two and a half fantasy points per game last season in head-to-head points leagues. Uh, his ADP right now, outfielder 63, picked 224 off the board. Uh, he hit 256 with 12 home runs, 14 steals, 55 runs scored in 104 games. That's a 155-game pace of 17 home runs and 20 steals. So a near 2020 player, he has some pop. uh, He has some speed. Now, the StatCast numbers are not great, but the one thing that stood out to me was that his sprint speed was in the 96th percentile uh, and, you know, was regarded as one of the top prospects uh, as a hitter the past couple of seasons with the Cincinnati Reds Um, last season was great against left-handed pitching, 897 OPS against righties, a 689 OPS. Uh, His minor league numbers show that he was actually much better against right-handed pitching. So I don't think this is something to the effect of like Gavin Lux, for example, because he has a history of not being great against left-handed pitching in the minors. Um, And then from May through July last season, the first three months that he played, he hit 285 with an 821 OPS from August on, 
he hit just 188 with a 554 OPS. And he was dealing with like an elbow thumb injury uh, during that time. Scott, every year there are players who are quote unquote blocked, or we have questions about their playing time heading into the season. Last year during draft season, we didn't know if Cattell Marte would play every day. Uh, If you looked at the Brewers roster, you would have thought there's no chance that Kesson Hira would have had a major impact on the season because they had Travis Shaw. They had Mike Moustakis. The Reds currently have five outfielders for three spots, uh, potentially the universal DH. But these things typically work themselves out. And I feel like if Nick Senzel hits, he will be in the lineup for the Reds, Scott. Yeah, I feel like in the pecking order among all the Reds outfield possibilities, Senzel would probably be second behind big dollar free agent Nick Castellanos. He's a difficult player to size up. For, for 2020, though, Nick Senzel is because he's kind of, I, I feel like he's kind of the ultimate blind faith in the pedigree kind of pick because the actual production last year, he was bailed out by a decent steals total, but otherwise it was, it was, it was pretty underwhelming. But former third overall pick, a guy who all three of his years in the minors was top 10 in overall prospect rankings, you rarely see somebody so consistently that high. Uh, I feel like he would have been up sooner if not for all the injuries he dealt with in the minors. There was uh, about with vertigo. There was, I think it, I, I can't remember what the injury a was. Finger. He had a, a finger, finger injury in 2018. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He had, he had surgery in late September on a torn labrum yeah. as well. So uh, the issue there is is twofold um because of that time he missed we don't have a great minor league track record for him to look at what we do have is pretty spectacular i mean 2017 was pretty close to a full season 455 at bats hit 321 with a 905 ops 14 homers 40 doubles but the home runs really came around late in the year there are probably some lingering questions about his overall power ceiling but it's the pedigree is so high that I kind of don't want to put limits on who Nick Senzel could be. And yet at the same time, I'm lukewarm on him going into this season because the stats and the supporting stats were so underwhelming. Yeah. Like Frank said, playing time concerns generally do work themselves out. We saw a great example of that with the Mets last season when early on in the season, they couldn't really find an everyday spot for, Jeff McNeil, Jeff McNeil uh, let alone J.D. Davis. And by the end of the season, both of those guys were playing pretty much every day. Jeff McNeil ended up at or close to 600 plate appearances. The problem is those things tend to play themselves out if the player forces the issue. And Nick Senzel did not force the issue last season. So he really – you're looking at a twofold. He has to get past the can he hit – question mark and really can he field because there are questions about where he's going to play and how viable he will be uh, in the outfield as well and then he has to get he has to prove that he's worth playing every day so there are multiple possible speed blocks or uh, you know exit ramps for for Nick Senzel's fantasy value and that that's what makes it uh, you know a difficult question and that's why he's ranked so low I have more questions about his hit tool uh, at this point than I really expected to, because what we've seen is 
decent power, probably averaged slightly above maybe, um, with slightly better than average strikeout rates. But in the majors last season, all of a sudden, he really couldn't hit the ball very hard at all, and he wasn't making much contact. 24.4% strikeout rate. Uh, overall in AAA, it's about 22%, which is about average. If Nick Senzel is an average hit tool player and an average power hitter, and probably not much more than an average or you know maybe a slightly above average stolen base guy, it, the profile starts to get a lot less appetizing. And, and that was one of the questions for him as a prospect was, does he have the ceiling? He, he was viewed, uh, you know, a catcher or a college draft pick, very safe, very ready, probably could have gotten called up, like Scott said, uh, in 2018, if not for the injuries. All of a sudden, maybe the injuries start taking their toll on his skill set. If he's not safe and he doesn't have the upside, what exactly does Nick Senzel bring to the table? Yeah, it's, it's obviously a question he's going to need to answer in the next year or two since he's already 24. Yeah, 25 um, in June. I mentioned he, he was the third overall pick the year he was drafted. He was actually second overall, so just to clear that up. Uh, but, like, if, if, if he is the ultimate blind faith pick this year, I feel like the ultimate blind faith in the pedigree pick last year was was Rafael Devers, and obviously that that worked out swimmingly. So these things can turn around quickly. But as you've pointed out before when I've made that comparison, Chris, Senzel is is several years older. So he's he's going to have to kick it into high gear here soon. Yeah, like Senzel is or Senzel was as old as Rafael Devers was last year, like four years ago is the problem. <laughs> so how, how much older does he than Devers? That's probably uh, <laughs> two years. Okay, there you go. About two years, about a year and a half. In riddles. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at the minor league track record, and it's, it's fairly comparable. Um, you know, both hit for high average. Senzel was a better hitter uh, overall in the minors, but the, that age is really where, you know, you can expect a player – from you know 18 19 you know made his major league debut at 20 you can expect that guy to start adding significant power or at least you can hope for it it's a lot harder to hope for with Senzel when he's not even established as an average hitter in the majors at 25. Senzel reminds me a lot of Scott Kingery. Scott Kingery last mm-hmm. season, 19 home runs, 15 steals, 64 runs scored, a 258 batting average in 126 games. So he played a few more games, but in terms of power speed, they don't seem far off. The biggest difference is in ADP right now, Scott Kingery is going at pick 181, whereas Senzel is going at 224. So over 40 picks later, nearly 45 picks. Um, these players seem quite similar here. Uh, Chris and you know what? Why is there such a big disparity in, in draft value? Is it just that you know Kingery is going to play every day and he has more uh, position eligibility? I mean, should that be a forty pick difference in ADP right now? Yeah, Kingery's not coming off a of shoulder surgery, which right. is that's a really significant thing for uh, hitters. You know, we we talked about Michael Conforto in a deep dive last week and how you know it probably took him a full year to get back to full strength. We saw. Gregory Polanco last season basically wasn't able to come back from, uh, I believe it was a torn labrum as well. And so that's, it's a tough injury 
to come back from. He is being discounted, I think, rightfully. Uh, the Kingery comp is a very interesting one because like Nick Senzel, Scott Kingery in the minors was mostly noted for his hit tool. He actually struck out uh, a little bit less than Nick Senzel and you know, really didn't hit for any power until 2017. Um, and even that was mostly one stretch at double A. But, you know, it, it's an interesting comp because Scott Kingery got to the majors and all of a sudden he can't make contact at all. He is uh, incredibly strikeout prone and we've seen a less extreme version of that with Senzel as well. And so it, it's a question of whether, um, you know, in an era like today when guys are trying to maximize for power and trying to maximize for ISO and, uh, you know, not as worried about contact. If the, you know, fringe average power guys uh, start selling out for power and lose hit tool as a result of it, uh, can they make up for it? And in Kingery's case, maybe, you know, certainly we weren't hoping he would hit 258 in the majors uh, in a quote unquote breakout season. So it, it's, they're interesting prospects and I'm not exactly sure how to feel about them. Scott, would you rather have Nixon Zell or Alex Verdugo in uh, rank it in Roto and in head to head points? In points, I'd rather have Verdugo because that strikeout advantage is, is just so valuable in that format. Roto, I mean, the fact you're likely to get double digit steals from Senzel, I think makes him the way to go there. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I do feel like compared to Verdugo, compared to Kingery, Senzel's upside is the highest, but his downside might be the lowest too. Oh, I actually think Verdugo's upside yeah. is higher, specifically after the trade to Boston. I just think that was an exceptionally good landing spot for him. Although we won't necessarily see the potential impact of that until 2021. I, I'm less convinced Verdugo's ever going to develop power, I guess. Where if, you, if you're holding out hope for Senzel too, I think there's still a chance. Just judging on scouting reports from their time in the minors. Verdugo did hit the ball harder last year. Ultimately, what, what the Senzel conversation comes down to is he's got to get better. Yeah, you know if he's and the same guy. He, yeah, if he he's if he's the same guy he was last season, uh, he'll be a, an okay, you know, fifth outfielder, but definitely not. And, and that's only if he keeps running, which I I don't right. think is guaranteed from him. I mean, I think if he hits two sixty with a near twenty twenty season, that's probably better than a fifth outfielder. Right? Yeah, that's probably more like a fourth outfielder. All right, so there you go, Nick Senzel. Uh, look, the upside is there, uh, but has to stay healthy, has to have a spot in the lineup, has to hit his way into the lineup. Uh, but those are some of the things that we uh, think about Senzel for this season. Uh, guys, before we get into auctions, I'm really excited to talk about auctions. Chris, a couple of weeks ago, we did a live Q&A on Facebook, a video, a live video Q&A. Uh, and this Friday, we're going to bring that back. Fantasy Baseball Today, the Facebook page, 5 p.m. Uh, 5 p. I didn't even ask you about a time. Does 5 p.m. work for you, Chris? We'll figure that out right now on the yeah, show. Yeah, 5 p.m. works for me on Friday because, uh, you know, we got the NFL draft. We'll be doing some coverage for that in the evening. So, yeah, that, that's perfectly fine with me. I'll, I'll take a break from uh, playing Call of Duty for that. <laughs> the, and the NFL draft doesn't resume until, what, like 7 p.m. that night? Anyway? I think so, yeah. 
All right, we so, got some time. so use, you know, your fantasy baseball today, live Q and a on our Facebook page at 5 PM, uh, as kind of your warm up. Bring us your life questions, your fantasy baseball questions, uh, and then go watch the NFL draft and do whatever you want. But this 5 p.m. Uh, this Friday at 5 p.m., uh, we'll be doing. Scott, you're you're more than welcome to join. Scott, you, like. you could jump in. Feel free. Yeah. I like I like to chat it up. I like Q and A. Is a little Amy A, Amy A A M A thing where you know we get some kind of uh, interesting questions from out of left field. And I would that. like to, I, I, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. I think it'd be really fun to do a live podcast on uh, Facebook. So, you know, we might start trying to do that maybe next week we've talked about. So that would be fun. Uh, so make sure you subscribe to that or join, like, join. Like us on Fantasy Facebook. Baseball Today Facebook yeah. page. Join the Facebook page, the Fantasy Baseball Today Facebook page. I would have asked Adam how his live fantasy football today Q and a went last night, because if you're listening to this, today's Wednesday, April 22nd, he did a live uh, football podcast on Twitch and it seemed like it went pretty well. I would have asked him about it, but again, we got big timed by Adam. He's not here. You know what? The show goes on. I want to talk about auctions. It seems like our general strategy discussion regarding trades last week was received pretty well. And, you know, people want to hear more about just our, strategy in general on how we attack certain things in fantasy baseball uh, and auctions. To me, the auction format is the best way to play any fantasy sport because you can construct the team however you want. There's no excuses about ADP. Yes, you have a finite amount of money that you can spend, but you can go stars and scrubs. You know, if you do an, a snake draft, you cannot draft Ronald Acuna and Mike Trout on the same team. In an auction, you can do exactly that. Now, the rest of the players on your team are going to suffer, but that is a decision that you can consciously make. You can have two first-round players on your team. So to me, auctions are the best way to play because you can construct a team in your vision, basically, however you want it to look. And I wanted to ask you guys, how many listener leagues do we normally have every season? Two. Two. Can we make one of those an auction? Has that ever been discussed? Uh, I... I I don't know if it's been discussed. The problem, so the, the only downside for an auction is you need to invest a significant hours. amount of time. Uh, you're talking about for a head-to-head -head auction, probably three and a half hours at least. Uh, yeah, and for more like a, four. A, yeah. And for a roto auction, especially if you're doing benches, four and, that four and can a half. hit, yeah, five hours easily. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, one of my longest running leagues is a keeper league, and we still were looking at four hours for are auctions. Yeah. So, are, way to put Chris on the spot. I think that's a no. <laughs> no, no. I mean, look, we totally can. Uh, we have not figured out how we're going to fill uh, the FBT podcast league and the FBT for the people league, which I'm going to take over for Heath. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we all got extra time right now. So maybe I don't want to say yes or no definitively. Good non committal not, answer. But probably yeah. not. We, we are a show of the people, so I will, you know, put it up to vote. I'll ask if there's any interest. If people want to do an auction, then we'll make it happen. If people have the time. they're going to say yes. Come on. <laughs> they want to. Look, that would be the right answer, in my opinion. I want to play in an auction league. Um, but the standard budget for, you know, look, I think some leagues are different, but I think the standard for most is a $260 budget. Uh, if anybody knows how we got to the number 260, feel free to just blurt it out because I have no clue how we got to $260. 
in an auction as like the standard. But I mean, I, I don't know why we call it rotisserie baseball. So there, there's lots of unanswered questions. Here. I, I think it's because they met at a, at a chicken shop. Like, I was going to say that jokingly, but they convened. Maybe no, I, th I think that's I think that's it. I mean, they being the the original league, it was a group of guys who met at a chicken shop. Wow. Uh, but I don't know 260. I don't know that one. That's one of the questions that will remain. I think Chris, is, I think Chris is trying to verify my answer here. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> don't worry. About it. It's in fantasy land. You can read a great book. Nando Defino is a principal character in it. Yes, he actually is. one of my favorite books. And yes, yeah. Nando Defino is in the book. Um, but I wanted to ask you guys, how do you normally in an auction divvy up your spending in terms of the $260 budget or whatever your budget might be? Because in Roto, I've heard a lot about 65-35, just kind of being the rule of thumb. I mean, some people go 70-30 uh, with the 70% representing how much they spend on hitting and 30% represent how much they spend on pitching. In a Roto league, of course, you have 14 hitters that you start. You have nine pitchers. Uh, so hitters make up just over 60% of your roster. Does that mean that you should spend more money on hitters because there are more of them in your starting lineup? because there are still just five categories for hitting and five categories for pitching. So technically they're equal, are they not? Yeah. So, I mean, how do you guys typically, is this something you figure out before the auction? Do you just say, all right, I'm going to spend 60% on, on hitting 60, 40% uh, on pitching. Scott, what do you normally do in terms of how you divvy up your budget? I know that's a normal thing to do. I've never broken it down that way. This is how much I want to spend on hitting. Generally, this is how much I want to spend on pitching. I've gone I usually lay out the whole lineup and I look and see where it's worth paying up for impact, which varies, of course, from year to year. This year, I'm, I'm saying it's starting pitching. You know, in the past, I might have spent hardly any money on pitching. It might have been more like 90-10 on hitting. Um, but yeah, I look where I can get the most impacts, like where, where actually paying up for the big player, I think, is going to make the most difference. I estimate looking at auction values, how much I'm going to have to spend on that. Maybe estimating a little over if it's somebody who I really want. And then I just lay it out position by position until it adds up to 260. Usually it adds up to like 360 and I have to start making cuts. But yeah, I, I, get, a, I get a working budget going that way. And then I know, and you know, usually I have a player or two in mind that specifically that I'm going to spend that amount on. Amount on. But if you can just get it down to an amount, that gives you a nice blueprint heading into an auction. Chris, in a head-to-head -head points league, you start nine hitters and you start seven pitchers. So hitters make up about 56% of your roster. Uh, should your budget for hitters versus pitchers be closer to 50-50 in a head-to-head -head points league, considering the roster construction? And most people emphasize starting pitchers in that format in a head-to-head -head points league. So is that somewhere where you would maybe kind of split the budget 50-50 in a head-to-head -head points league? Uh, I have, I don't like Scott. I don't really have a hard and fast rule on that, especially, you know, as I've gotten more experienced as a player and as an analyst, you know, I used to be pretty, you know, I used to try to be pretty strict about like a 65-35 or 70-30 approach but you know now if I'm playing in a head-to-head -head league like I'm more likely to pay up for the elite starting pitcher in a head which means I'm more likely to spend a significant amount of my budget on it but you know I've 
I've done auctions where I've spent 80 per, even this year, 80% of my budget on hitting. And I've done some where it's been closer to 50, 50. And, you know, I, I think you can lead yourself astray a little bit going in with too hard of a rule because the thing about auctions really like you have to have a plan um, or at least you should. I often don't. <laughs> um, well, I mean, like I don't have a specific, like write out my whole plan for this draft. Yeah, this no, is what sure. I like. I, I, I know who I like, I know where I think the values are. Um, but the thing about an auction is every single one is different. So if you try to set yourself a plan, yeah, you have a very good chance of, of screwing yourself up. And a big part of auctions is psychological. It's not just drafting players. It's, you know, something that, that Scott talked about with one of our, with one of our last auctions was getting in your own head and, and kind of psyching yourself out. I think you, you spent too much, you thought you spent too much on Charlie Blackman and it kind of sent you spiraling, I think in one of the drafts. And so mm-hmm. that's, you have to be flexible with yes. your approach. And so if you see that the entire draft, you know, we did one head to head draft where I ended up with like six top six hitters with ADPs in the top three rounds because nobody was spending on hitting. Uh, and then there are other ones where, where I'll, you know, go get to 25 or $30 pitchers. It, th- yeah. You can't have one rule going into an auction. Yeah. No, that's, I feel like you need a plan because otherwise it's just easy to lose track of, of how much money you have left to devote to things, yeah. but it has to be flexible. And, and kind of the reason I like breaking it down by position is because I could just do the arithmetic real quickly. Okay. I, I had to go $5 over on this player. So now I have to take $5 away from some other spot mm-hmm. or, you know, this, I, I planned to spend $35 on this first baseman, but this good one fell in my lap for 14. How do I divvy up those extra $21? And you always can, can kind of keep molding your plan as the auction's going on and not feel overwhelmed by just, by just the lack of information. Um, but it's, yeah, it's 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 very important to adapt to the behaviors you're actually seeing in your auction. And and that's what I think the preset auction values are are best for. Now they're optimized for the standard format. So they're optimized for 12 teams, $260 budget, uh and, and the lineup, you know, in a roto league it's optimized for two catcher lineup and and head to head just you know, uh uh the the standard nine hitters, five starters, two relievers, and the five-man bench. So, you know, if you don't play in one of those, you're going to have to kind of adjust based on your format. And that, you know, obviously you're just going to have to figure out how to do that. But the idea is that if you see the high-end players going for a lot more, which is most typical, the high-end players go for more than, than what the preset auction values are, then you know there's going to be a lot less money on the table for those mid-tier players, the next tier down, low-end players maybe. There's going to be a lot less money. So those, those guys are going to go for less than they're projected to go for. And you might decide maybe I could stand to have one less stud so that I can you know, get, get those bargains later. Um, that's something that, 
that I tend to go with often. Now, I, I do think the studs are more, more important the shallower the league you're in, and maybe they're all worth paying up for. I don't know. Certainly, if it's like a head-to-head format and you're auctioning your bench as well, I mean, I don't want to spend that much on my bench. Those can all be $1 guys as far as I'm concerned. But Yeah, although I don't mind, especially if you go extreme one way or the other. If you go really pitching heavy or really hitter heavy, I don't mind an approach where you save a little money for like you go into your last eight picks with $18 instead of 10, which can happen. Yeah. That no, way, that's, that's a good point. I, I that, should, I never really want a $1 player in an auction because, well, I think you're about to get into it. Yeah. Like I I'm looking back at the last head to head auction that we did. Um, and it was, you know, more than a month ago at this point, a month and a half ago. Uh, so some stuff has changed, but I'm looking at my team and what I really liked was, yeah, I only had one, $1 player. And this was a team that I went really uh, hitter heavy just because that's the way the draft unfolded. It wasn't necessarily my plan. The first player I drafted actually was Justin Verlander for $44. And then I saw basically every other starting pitcher going for that price. Uh, you noted in the write-up for this, that Ronald Acuna went for $2 less than Zach Greinke. Yeah. In this draft. Was... And so it was, it was a really weird draft and that's, you have to be flexible. And so once I saw that happening, you know, I ended up with JD Martinez, Alex Bregman, Jose Ramirez, Glaber Torres, Aaron judge, like my hitting is absolutely stacked. And then I saved enough money so that when it got down to the end of the draft with starting pitchers and I was trying to fill out the rest of my uh, lineup and then my bench, I went really pitcher heavy on the bench. I made sure that I could go $3 for, you know, a Joe, Joe Musgrove or Lance McCullers um, rather than, you know, trying to sneak through a dollar pitcher and not being able to get them. Yeah. So that, that's I mean, something to keep in mind. I, I feel like kind of, we're kind of jumping ahead to the end game there, but that is, I feel like the most important bit of auction advice I can offer is that you want to delay being down to $1 bids as long as you can, because then you're just limited to whoever you nominate and anybody else wants that guy. You have to wait another round of nominations to have a chance at anybody else. And you could just end up with a total scrub bench where if you're the guy who can jump in for $2 or $3, pretty much never go to four at that point, but I either jump straight to three or just do two. Um, Then obviously you have a much better chance of getting the bona fide sleepers that are still available at that point of the auction. And sometimes they can be pretty high end just because of the way the nominations went. Somebody pretty high end will sneak through when nobody has much money left and you can, you can get him for very cheap. So that's, yeah, that's, that's important. And, And usually I know about the time to back off on the bidding and, and just, focus on jumping in with two or three dollar bids is when I have uh, when my max bid is about half my total dollar amount left then that's all I'm doing the rest of the auction is just nominating players that I don't really need but I could stand to have for a dollar if they sneak through and then just sniping everybody else's one dollar nominations Scott I wanted to ask you and you know we get a lot of questions about this so I don't know uh, what is your process for creating auction values yourself because uh, you know people want to kind of make up their own auction values and you know I'll be honest I mean what I've always done is I go to fan graphs you if you hover over their projections 
uh, they have a projections tab on the top. You'll see auction calculator. It allows you to plug all of your league settings in and then it kind of spits out auction values. Uh, so I, I usually do that. And then I kind of look at a reputable source uh, what their auction values are. Let's just say, I don't know, Scott White's auction values, for example. And then I'll kind of compare and contrast and kind of make my own auction values by like combining all of those things. I know that there's a way to do it where if you create your own projections, they can convert those into auction values using Z scores. I mean, that's like a whole... Some kind of formula, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's actually a really good piece on that. Because I know that you're like, you're the math guy here on the show, apparently. There, there's a really good... I mean, I'm not a math guy at all. I, I'm, I'm faking it. You know, I, I, I know Excel functions, but you, you fake it the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, there is a very good piece on sportsline.com from Ariel Cohen, a uh, friend of the podcast um, where he, you know, created auction values based on the sports line projections and also kind of walked you through the process and he uses Z scores um, to do so. And, and he has a somewhat automated system for doing it. Um, so, you know, that, that's one way to do it. I, I have my own process where I, uh, you know, came up with a formula based on last year's rotisserie results and, um, you know, how to, how to weight each category and the contributions for each category. And then I, you know, establish what the kind of replacement level player is, the $1 players, and then go from there. Um, Scott's process, I think, is a little less automated than that. Mine is about as low, as unscientific as it could be. <laughs> it, it's closer to what you're doing, Frank. I, I get a sense of how much I want the top player to be. How much, not necessarily how much I'm willing to pay for him, because that would depend on probably the depth of the league and... um and just the kind of team I'm trying to design. I'm, I'm kind of intentionally lowballing the top player just to kind of play it safe. But I get a sense of, of what that top player should be. And then I just, I go down my rankings, my top 276 or however many players are going to get auction rankings. And I, I just, uh, when I see a drop off, I lower the auction amount. I, I just I just work relatively off what that top player is and keep dropping the amount till I get to the end, and then I keep adjusting them till it adds up to thirty one twenty, which is twelve times two hundred sixty dollars budgets. And uh, it's it's actually a pretty fast process. It's one of the few things I do quickly compared to the average person, probably. And it seems to work well enough. I'm often very surprised at how on the nose my auction values end up being as the auction is playing out of course none are perfect but it seems to work it works well enough that i'm not interested in in really i haven't been motivated to change the process so that's that's how i go about doing it and if somebody wants to make their own auction values i'll just remind you i mean you can kind of equate auction value to round value so you know typically a first round pick in a 12 team league is going to cost you anywhere from, you know, in the high 30s to the mid 40s. You know, maybe for like the Trout, Acuna, uh, Yelich group in a Roto League, maybe they hit the high 40s. But for the most part, you know, most first round players are going to be low 40s. They're going to be high 30s. So, and then kind of tip, tip, uh, t 
take it down based on that. It's kind of what you said, Scott, but you know that each round player kind of has a, um, an auction value kind of attached to where they are drafted. You guys talked about this a little bit. And in terms of prep, Chris, you mentioned that you are, you want to plan, but you're also flexible. And, you know, I posted two images in a rundown. If you guys just want to check about, this is typically what I do. It's kind of crazy. And I'll tweet these pictures out if people want to see them, but I'm a madman in terms of like planning out my auction I have a target at each position. Position. I have a backup target at each position. I know how much money I want to spend at each position. If it's a roto league, I know how much money I want to spend on uh, each like category. So like I'll say, oh, I'll put ten or twelve dollars aside for a twenty stolen base outfielder. Like these are just things that I think of, and I'll have backups in place. And I really do plan it out. But with that being said, while I do have a, it seems very rigid plan, the flexibility comes in the prices that I allow. So I'll write down an amount that I have in my mind that I want to pay, but I'll be willing to go one, two, maybe $3 over that price once the auction starts. Because again, you mentioned every auction is different. And I think that's the flexibility that you have to have. So I create a very you know, rigid plan, but within that plan, I am flexible with my auction prices, if that makes sense. I, um, yeah. I don't know. One of the things that I I always try to remind myself, especially in auctions more so than even snake drafts is I don't care what the player's name is. Does that make sense? Like I, I, it's really easy, especially in an auction because they move so fast and you're, you always have to react. You know, you can't in a, in a snake draft, you can get up and walk away uh, for a few minutes, you know, especially if you're on an end in an auction draft, they're kind of exhausting. They require <laughs> four hours of you being on top of the draft because yeah. have you know, to schedule you, bathroom breaks. Yeah. If you everybody. step away, if you step away for 45 seconds, you could miss an entire player. Uh, yeah. If you go to a different window. And so you could miss the player, the single player you were most looking out for. Yeah. And, and so that is one of the side effects of that is you'll reach a point sometimes where, you'll be looking at something else. You'll be checking your list or scratching someone off or something. And you'll go back to the window and see, you know, Bo Bichette is up for auction and he's at $15. And you're like, well, oh, oh crap, I want Bo Bichette. And so you'll hit uh, the plus one button and then you'll realize like, oh crap, I already had a shortstop or, oh crap, I only have, you know, $67 left and I need X, Y, and Z. And so that's one of the, th that's part of why I, try and often fail at least once per draft i do that specifically and hopefully i'll get bailed out by someone else but uh i try to remind myself that it's not the player who matters it's the production that you're expecting to get from them and so you always have to keep in mind that for every player there are generally going to be some analogs who can provide you similar expected production um and so that's why I try to avoid making a specific list. Uh, it's a little different in keeper leagues just because, you know, if you go into a draft with 10 keepers for $37 of your $260 budget because you drafted really well and played the waiver wire and you've got some really great cheap keepers, then it makes more sense to say, I'm going to get Ronald Acuna this year because I want 
the best no matter the cost. on my team. Yeah, no matter the cost. But yeah. that's the, that's really the only situation where I feel comfortable having a specific list of players that I, you know, want to make sure I get. Unless it's, you know, if it's your late round guys, your Mitch Kellers and Joe Musgroves and guys that you personally like, your, your, Mark, your Marks Canna, uh, that's different. Yeah. Although I, part of, part of what I've had to learn from doing auctions is that though it's often pitched as you can build the team you want, like you can make a team that more resembles your, uh, your feelings on players than any draft. I find that's actually not true that my draft teams more resemble me than my auction teams because, because it, 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 you know, the players, the, the trendy players everybody likes are the trendy players that everybody likes. And in an auction, when they're nominated, everybody was waiting to see them. And it seems like the price gets inflated. Everybody's sleepers are the same. It always seems like. Depending on when they're nominated, I mean, if they happen to stick around later in the draft, maybe you can still get them at a discount. But if somebody's eager to throw his name out there, he gets nominated early, he, he inevitably goes for too much. And, like, you just can't get that stuck on a single sleeper um or else you're going to end up overpaying you have to you have to be open-minded about what what a sleeper can be and you have to be willing to accept the ones that are available to you at the right price Uh, in a draft by comparison i mean everybody knows to wait till a certain point to draft mark canna nobody's reaching and drafting mark canna on round 10 unless it's like a really deep league but so you don't have to, you never have to reach that much for him. In an auction, he could go for yeah. $12 more than he's projected for very easily. And then that totally screws up your budget and it's not at all a discount anymore. So that's, that's something I've had to train myself about. Sleepers only, I mean, this isn't 100% true, but sleepers only matter if they're a discount. Yeah, you know, Mark Canna's only Mark Canna's not, I mean, Scott thinks he is, but, you know, Mark <laughs> Canna is expected or hope to provide more value than you invest in him. But if you invest what you expect him to do, all of a sudden, there's not really any point yeah. in, in making Mark Canna, you know, one of, your, one of your building plots. You know, if you have to spend $10 on Mark Canna, well, all of a sudden, you might as well just spend 14 on Nick Castellanos or something like that. Someone who's a, probably a safer bet. And it's very likely that that mid-tier tends to get passed over a lot in standard mixed leagues, like mm-hmm. the Nick Castellanos tier. And if, if Mark Canna gets nominated for before Nick Castellanos, it's very likely he could go for even more than him. So that's... Oh, auctions are so tricky, man. Because that that... That right there is is another thing. That the most frustrating ones to me are those where that happens, where all the high end players go for a little too much, and maybe enough enticing low players were nominated early that they all went for way too much, and you just underestimated how much money is going to be left, and all those mid tier players go for peanuts, and you keep thinking, well, that guy's clearly worth more than that. I want to jump in on the bidding there too, but you look at your pile of money and it's really not that much. You could maybe do that once or twice. And like, it's, it's really hard to disconnect, to, to separate 
the player from the price. Just yeah. think in terms of that player is clearly a discount, so I must must have have him. And and while you know, still and, keeping in mind, oh, I only have this much money left, and I have this many needs. I can't do it. One thing I found is my, my teams and auctions are also much more. Um, God, what's the word? They're, they they look a lot less like my teams in in snake drafts. You know, in in a snake draft, I think we probably all have a core group of players that we draft. You know, pretty regularly, and you know, your teams tend to look pretty similarly. Uh, but in an auction, you know, I'm looking back at the head to head points auction. I don't really like Paul Goldschmidt that much this year. I think mm-hmm. Labor Torres is overvalued. I don't really. I haven't drafted much Eddie Rosario at all, I don't think. And I have all three of those guys on this team just because you hit a point where you know, Goldschmidt was six. I don't like Goldschmidt this year, but Paul Goldschmidt for $6, he's probably going to return at least that, if not more. Eddie Rosario, the same thing. Glaber Torres for 16 um, And that, that's why, again, going back to, you know, I don't – I want to not really care about the name. Because I made the mistake in this draft with Adrian Hauser as a pitcher with Sparp eligibility, who I like as a sleeper. Starting pitching was starting to get thin. I ended up spending $8 on Adrian Hauser. Probably not my best buy. <laughs> but that, that, those are the kind of psychological things that you have to keep in mind uh, as you're going through the draft. You know, I wanted to ask you guys about your – mid-auction practices because this is honestly I mean we could do a whole nother show just on this alone but in terms of nomination and your bidding process these are just two things I want to get your thoughts on uh and for nomination a lot of people just automatically all right I'm going to nominate a high-end player the highest end player that I don't want so that other people spend their money that's fine I mean that can be you know how you attack it it could be you know you're going to nominate every time you're up you're going to nominate a position a player from a certain position that you just don't want anything to do with. I, I remember in the Tout Wars uh, head-to-head points auction that I did this year, Ian Khan, who is the defending champion, every time he was up, he nominated a closer because based on the scoring format, he realized that closers were not really worth much. So he would just nominate a closer every single time. So uh, how do you guys nominate typically? And with the bidding process, are you guys that like, you wait for the clock to get all the way down that. to one. Is I that hate, like, I hate that person so much. And <laughs> this is part of the logical thing. <laughs> this, but that's part of the psychological warfare of an auction right. is that I get tripped up by that at least once per draft. If I've got a guy I really want and it's like $16 and I'm there and I'm like starting to write them into my spreadsheet and then it gets down to one second and the bidding has been going on for a while. And it gets down to one second and someone jumps in, someone who wasn't involved in the bidding before, I lose my mind. And there will always be one time in every auction where I'm just like, I'm getting this guy. I don't care how many times they press. And it just. The second volley. You have to try to uh, stay Zen and it's really hard. And that is like, Heath is someone who loves to do that. And he loves to do that to me specifically because he's, He's been in drafts with me, and this is where, where knowing your league also uh, helps you get an edge. He's been in drafts with me, and he knows how much that infuriates me because we're in you know, three football auctions and two baseball auctions every year, and so not, not even counting all the mocks we do. And so 
Heath knows me well enough that he knows that if he does that to me at a specific point in a draft, I'm going to react that way and spend $4 more than I should. This is, this is why he, this is why I call him the master troll because this, <laughs> he, he just lives to upset people sometimes. One thing he does with me is he, he has my auction values in front of him. Yep. And particularly for high-end players that he knows I'm going to have some interest on. It's still early. I haven't spent a lot of money yet. He'll just go straight to what my auction amount is so that I have no chance of getting him for a value that I think is a discount. <laughs> Such a jerk move. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, boy, I've had a lot of things I wanted to react to, like Chris was saying, and now I'm forgetting them all. I guess, I guess I'll start with the nomination question where... Uh, you know, what kind of players do you nominate? I, I think typically it makes more sense to nominate someone you don't want than someone you do. At more points in the auction, you're trying to take other bidders out on future bids. There's less money in the pool with every pick. Yeah, right. But there are times where I think it definitely behooves you to nominate a player you want. I One thing... One like if there is a single player who stands out above all the others that like this my, the rest of my draft plan depends on whether I get this guy or not. You can't wait around half the auction for him to be nominated because you're missing so many buy opportunities. Finding out how that's going to go, so you just got to put him out there, and it may mean he ends up going for more than he could have if you waited longer. It's it's less than optimal. I get that, but. It's, it's so much better than the alternative, thinking you're going to get him and saving a lot of money for him, only to find out you don't. And now, what are you going to do with all that money? That's, yeah. that's like one of the biggest auction disasters you can have. So, and that's even true on the high end. Like, if Trey Turner is my plan A for steals, I need to know very early if I'm going to get Trey Turner or not, because yeah, I need to pivot, to pivot if I can't. Yeah, it's one thing that I, that I like to do, you know, I, I'm typically not going to spend much on closer um, and I'm typically not going to spend much on catcher. So one thing I'll try to do is target the low end guys who I'd like and see if I can sneak them through early in a draft for like $2. And so, you know, if I know I don't want to spend much money on, on catcher, but I know I like I know I like Buster Posey and nobody's really excited about him. I might with my third my third nomination throw Buster Posey out for $2. And if someone wants to take him for 3, go for it. I would guess nobody in in my draft has Buster Posey valued at $3. And so there's a decent chance that I can get him lock in that spot on my roster and lock in some cost certainty um, without necessarily having to spend a lot of money to do it. Chris, speaking of catchers, I know that you like Wilson Ramos. Uh, in a two-catcher league, which was Tout Wars, I got Wilson Ramos for two bucks. So how about that? In a two-catcher league, he should go for more than $2. I should say so, yeah. Wilson Ramos? Yeah. I think I got Wilson. Yeah, you got him for $2. See, and that's, that's the kind of thing that that'll never happen. And I mean, I guess it could happen where he could slide to like 180. Uh, but for the most part, you know, you pretty much know Wilson Ramos is going to cost, you know, the seventh most at catcher in a, in a snake draft. In an auction, it's entirely possible that, you know, if Danny Jansen and Francisco Mejia and Carson Kelly get nominated first, 
uh, and Wilson Ramos is still out there, you could get him for cheap. And that's true at any position. Yeah. Oh, I remember one of the things I wanted to address that Chris was talking about that, that the volley, uh, that's what I call yeah. when the bids are bouncing from person to person, when it's just you and one other guy and you've gone up three or $4 at that point. I do. I do drain the clock at that point because I want him to think that I am debating whether to go that extra dollar. I want him to think if he bids again, uh, he's going to be stuck with that amount. Um, so I wait until, you know, I may be willing to go up three or four more times, but I start bidding slower because yeah. I want him to think I'm really having to sweat it at this point so that maybe he backs off so he doesn't risk bidding more than he wants to. Or and maybe it makes him second guess his own bidding and he backs off for that reason. And we haven't really, we've talked a little bit about price enforcing, but that's, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is assuming that the other guy is price enforcing and assuming that that guy not, basically just sees it and says, I don't want him to get that player for that cheap. Not necessarily. But they but don't yes. necessarily want them because that, that's what well, it's, I never price enforce. Yeah. Personally. You play so, it safe. Yeah. Price enforcing is a risky strategy. I, I've pretty epically gotten burned on price enforcing before with uh, a certain Nando Defino and a certain Jed Jerko. <laughs> I was going to bring this up. <laughs> oh, is this, is this like a famous story? From a while ago, right? Didn't you, yeah. are you price enforcing Jerko to, to mess with? It was like 20 Nando bucks or something, right? And you wound Jed, up with now, this was, this was back when Jed Jerko was pretty big deal. It was, it was, he was a he was breakout like a, pick. Yeah. But Nando specifically was high on him and Nando specifically likes the guys he likes he wants his guys and he will pay whatever it takes to get them so armed with that knowledge I had already committed to this draft to getting this was back when Trout and Miguel Cabrera were clear one and two and I paid like 60 bucks for each I was going ultimate stars and scrubs so I really had to be careful about the rest of the money I spent (laughs) having already devoted that much to those two guys. But I was really going to stick it to Nando. And when Jed Jerko came up, I just, I got carried away bidding him up. And sure enough, he backed off at like $24, which was probably more than twice what I valued Jerko as. And, and this I is probably his second, this is probably the 2014 season uh, coming off that rookie year when he hit 23 homers. It uh, may have just been, yeah. For context sake, he hit 210 with uh, 10 home runs that year. <laughs> I, I wasn't big on price enforcing before then, but I thought I had Nando's number, man. I thought I knew exactly the way he operates. And that, that, that taught me a lesson because I think I still managed to finish like fourth or something. It didn't completely wreck my season, but I, I'm still curious how that team would have turned out if I had been able to distribute those dollars the way I wanted to. So it's, yeah, I don't, I don't do that, but you know, if, if somebody is price enforcing with me, or even if they're just getting caught up in the bidding, like I, I like to slow things down, make them think, okay, do I really want to go that extra dollar for this guy? Clearly, Scott White, fantasy baseball expert on the other end, is starting to think this is getting too high. Maybe I should think about that too. And then hopefully, hopefully I can stop the volley there. It's email time. 
fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. This question comes from Frank. Frank, Adam, Chris, and Scott. Well, three of the four are here today. I listen every day and really trust in your advice. I'm in a 10-team points league and have been offered this trade. Garrett Cole, David Dahl, and Wilson Contreras for Manny Machado, Chris Bryant, and Julio Urias. And it looks like he is the team that's actually giving up the Machado side. So Machado, Bryant, and Urias for Contreras, David Dahl, and Garrett Cole. His current catcher is Kurt Suzuki. I love that trade. You're getting the best player in the trade, obviously, in Garrett Cole. But you're also really you're, – you're getting a first-round player, and you're not giving up, you know, probably any of your first three picks – I would assume possibly any of your first four picks. Mm -hmm. And so that just feels like an easy win, especially because David Dahl and Wilson Contreras are pretty good. You know, Wilson Contreras is the top three or four catcher and David Dahl, you know, if he stays healthy, should at least be a starter. Uh, Well, in a 10 team points league, maybe not at least a starter, but you know, won't be horrible. Hopefully. Yeah. Maybe. And and, and the fact it is a 10 team league, I think the shallower, the league is the more true it becomes that the person who gets the best player wins the deal. Yeah. I think that's an A. This would make Frank's pitching staff, Garrett Cole, Mike Clevenger, Patrick Corbin, Hugh Darvish, Jack Flaherty, Justin Verlander. <laughs> it's just absurd. So you're going to have an excess of uh, starting pitching there, which is what you want in a points league, but uh, might even be able to look at another trade, uh, flipping someone else and improving another spot on your team. But yeah, I do like that trade a lot as well. Uh, This next one comes from Brian Young. Hi, Frank, Colt, and Spike. So this appears to be... This is some kind of YouTube thing, right? From a freemium mobile video game called Brawl Stars, developed and published by the Finnish video game company Supercell. Okay, yeah, because I searched this up and I found Brawl Stars on YouTube. So I thought it was just like some kind of YouTube animated series, but uh, it sounds like your answer is probably a little bit closer here, Chris. I have no, I mean, yeah, (laughs) sure. So on your show, you talked about how y'all say things. I swear I never hear Scott say the D in didn't. To me, it sounds like he says didn't. Yep, that was, that's what Ellen Adair pointed out. I can't remember if it was the first time or the second time she was on, but yeah. That's... There's a, I, I think I mentioned this on one of the previous podcasts, but you know, when we were talking about this, there's a book called The Mother Tongue by Bill Bryson. It came out in the 90s, I think. And it's like uh, Bill Bryson is a, a, a travel writer who has moved on into like the history of things. And so this one is the history of the English language. And it, it's fascinating. He talks about all of these things that, that we all do that you know, we see how words are written, but we never actually speak them the way that they're written, even with stuff that doesn't have, like, there's no silent D and didn't, but nobody really says didn't. Most people, most of the time, you know, slur the word. They say didn't, uh, yeah. you know, nobody says Wednesday. We say Morton. Wednesday. Morton. English is a February. Weird- for sure. I, you know, I, uh, my fiance is Polish, so I try to like read some of the words. It's impossible, at, at least for me. It would probably easier for someone else. But um, yeah, someone who would just be trying to pick up English and sound out every word phonetically, like how it looks, um, good luck. Because there are a lot of uh, misleading words in the English dictionary. I do think Ellen Adair probably 
says didn't. Well, like, she, yeah, she, I mean, she's a she's a professional communicator. Unlike well, aren't, aren't we? No. <laughs> I'd like to think we are, Scott. There's God. There's a word for those. For for that process when you like. Ah, I can't remember. Pronouncing things really well or like... Uh... No, for like the didn't thing. Oh, okay. I can't remember what the word is. Somebody smarter than me, send us an email yeah, telling I think, us what that is. I think, it, I think I'd recognize it if I heard it's it. It's not like a colloquialism. It's, yeah. There's a specific word for that process of removing sounds and words when you're speaking. But uh... Anyway, Brian's question is, when I draft hitters, I try to at least get two players in the same lineup. This year, how things panned out in my draft, I ended up with pairing three different lineups up. Wound up with Trout and Rendon, Kesson Hira and Lorenzo Cain, and Nelson Cruz and Jorge Polanco. Does this strategy work? And did I overdo it with three pairs? This is a head-to-head categories league in a 10-team league. It's... I, I think it's irrelevant. I think the only time I would say it's not is in a head-to-head league either points or categories, there can be a slight boost to having that in a head-to-head matchup. You know, if you you get to the end of the week and your score is close, Mike Trout hits a home run with Anthony Rendon on first base, you're getting double points from that. So in that instance, there there is value, but... But, but even then, it's a matter of timing because it could right. be that that whole team gets shut out on a Sunday. Exactly. So it, it's... You know, I, we talk about it a lot uh, in DFS with stacking. And, and that's really, I think, where when you're trying to lean into the variance and you're trying to build these high scores, uh, especially in your tournament lineups, that's where it makes sense to say, well, the Twins are going against a bad pitcher. I'm going to go for, you know, the one through four in the Twins lineup and hope that there's a ton of production there. Um, so th- I think it matters less in, in season long, although I don't, like I want to, at some point in a mock draft we do, and I haven't done it yet, but I want to try to just draft every Twins hitter because I think it's a viable strategy. I will point out that last season I had three Rockies on the same head-to-head points league roster, and it was terrible. It you was got to bench them, yeah. Oh, my I God. To, I mean, yeah. Don't do that. Do not stack Rockies in a head-to-head points league. They're much better in roto formats because, all right, the end of season production, you know, Charlie Blackman going to be great at home. He's going to stink on the road. But when the season ends, he's going to hit 300. He's going to have 30 home runs, yada, yada. In a points league, man, let me tell you, I mean, you need consistency week in and week out. When when you have three Rockies hitters on the road in your lineup together, I think I had Trevor Story, David Dahl, and Daniel Murphy. Oh, my God. It was so bad. So don't do that. In a head-to-head points league, do not stack Rockies. It, it might have been that one of those Rockies was just bad. Yeah, Daniel Murphy also the season was yeah, just Daniel Murphy was so just that's on bad. me. I, you know, <laughs> I that profile better as a points league player last season, but wow. Um, I mean, I was all in on Daniel Murphy last year. I thought Daniel Murphy was going to hit like 340. So Yeah, me too. Yeah. It did not work. So that's, that's my last point on that regarding uh, stacking players in a head-to-head points league. But that'll do it for today's show. Uh, thanks for listening. Fantasy Baseball today for Chris and Scott. I am Frank. We will talk to you again on Thursday. Bye-bye.